Hello and welcome to the South American Football Show on the World Football Index. Joining me for this special Q&A session are two regulars of our show, Tom Robinson and Simon Edwards. Welcome back to the South American Football Show. With coronavirus and everything, we've obviously been away now for a, for a few months, so we're we're back just to just to answer quite a few questions that have come in on Facebook and Twitter. How are you doing, Tom? Yeah, very good. Um, looking forward to discussing some yeah some really great questions that we've had in, and uh, yeah, good to be back on the pod and uh, talking all things South American football to get some feels like some normality back in my life. And let's fly over to Colombia to see how Simon's doing. Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. Looking forward to playing some football, but until until that's possible, I have to I'll have to put up with talking to you guys about football. But delighted to be back. Delighted to be back. Burn. <laughs> oh yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> um, right, let's get started. Let's uh, let let's talk football. We're we're going to stay away from the the dreaded coronavirus for this episode. Uh, we asked people on Facebook and Twitter to send us in some questions. First of all, we're going to deal with a few of the questions that we got from Facebook, first of all. And the first one I'm going to touch on is from Richard Cook. He says, hello, leaving aside Brazil and Argentina, what has been your favourite international side from the region in the past? I have my answer to this, which I'll come on to in a minute. But first, I'm going to go over to Tom to find out what side he has picked. Yeah, I, th- I think we might very well have the same same answer here, and I'll I'll not go into too much detail because you'll be better placed to to discuss it than than me. But but certainly the the, the Chile sides under both Bielsa and San Paoli were absolutely brilliant. I I loved both of those, and um, yeah, that they, they would definitely be my my standout ones if we're especially if we're taking away brazil and argentina but other than that i think um i've enjoyed uruguay uh, a lot of the time the 2010 world cup campaign in in particular was you know it, it might not necessarily have always been the most scintillating football but it had so much drama you know the game against ghana was what I think will go down as an all-time classic in in terms of everything you want from a football match and you know great players lots of drama the the, the villain um and uh, of Suarez there so I, th- I think that would probably be my by my second one and uh, I also had a soft spot for uh Gareca's Peru side um that, that we've seen more recently as well but um I, I'm, I'll go back to to Adam to, to wax lyrical about probably what I imagine he's going to choose. Yeah, um, as many would have guessed by now, with me being based in Chile, I've obviously uh, gone for Chile as the answer to this. And, and lockdown has sort of given me the chance to re-watch some of the most famous matches of this past decade, of this golden generation of Chilean football. And and yeah, some some of the some of the highlights of 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 those few years is is the the standard of football that they reach at times is uh, is truly stunning and, and remarkable. And you know, there, there is a there is a tinge of regret. I think when I when I do watch these some these some of these Chile games back, especially how they performed against Spain in the Maracanã. In, in the 2014 World Cup when they won 2-0, I remember feeling at the time, you know, Chile look 
potentially even good enough to win this competition. And, you know, they came very close to, to beating Brazil, just, uh, you know, just the crossbar denying Mauricio Bonilla in the, in, in the final few seconds of, of, of extra time. And, and then they went on to lose on penalties. And, you know, that looking back, at, they would have had a quarterfinal against Colombia and obviously the semi-final against Germany would have proved probably the, the toughest test uh, Chile would have faced in that World Cup. But, yeah, it, we, I, I still feel like uh, like Chile could have even reached uh, beyond the semi-final of that World Cup. But, yeah, I feel extremely fortunate to have moved to Chile when I did, which was in... The, the latter end of 2010 and and to see Chile for the first time win some silverware as they did in 2015 um, and the, and one of the games I, I also watched back uh, recently was the one of my favorite games um, that, I've, that I've ever been at in the stadium I think and that was the quarterfinal against Uruguay in some ways that was the moment I think that that Chile team, came of age in, in a lot of ways because in, in the past I think that was a game that Chile would have lost um, but they managed to to battle and to keep on pressing the Uruguay goal and yeah with just a few minutes remaining Mauricio Isla of all of all players a player who's not renowned for his goal scoring ability uh, manages to find find the net, and yeah, the explosion of noise in that stadium that day, and the, and the, and the relief that Chile had won because they were just minutes away from facing a penalty shootout, um, and uh, and Chile by that point, which sounds strange now, but at that point they had never won a penalty shootout before, um, so yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, it was a huge relief to win that game. And obviously, they went on to beat Peru in the semis and Argentina in the final. But, you know, the, the real highlight for me, I think, was the 2016 Copa America Centenario victory, where um, even though that wasn't under their two best uh, head coaches of, of, of the last decade, San Paoli and, and Bielsa, I think the level of football they reached um, in the 7 0 victory in the, in the quarterfinal against um, Mexico uh, will always live long in, in my memory. Um, I, I still feel that is probably the best international um, side performance I've, I've ever seen. Um, you know, I've, I've watched it back various times and, you know, Chile were just untouchable that game. And yeah, it's 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 a game that never fails to to make me smile for for the level that Chile reached, and and they went on to to comfortably beat Colombia in in in, in the semi final, and then again beating Argentina on penalties in in the final. But what what else you've got to remember? You know, there was lots of questions raised when Chile had won the 2015 Copa America about whether they had only won it because it was on home soil, so. Yeah, for that that second of the Copper America victories, will always have a special place in in the hearts of of all Chileans. I think because it was a a big fu to uh, the rest of South America, having been accused of all sorts the uh, the year before. Yeah, obviously came close to winning the Confederations Cup, and and you know, and then it all faded. Um, 
away after that and as they failed to qualify for for Russia 2018. We'll touch on that in a bit, but the fluidity of the football and and uh, and the passion of the side um, over the last de- for the for majority of the last decade at least has been a joy to watch, and we even saw glimpses of it in in last year's Copa America. I feel Simon, yours. Right. Well, obviously, obviously, my mind goes straight to Colombia, but a couple of other teams. I, you know, I remember listening on the radio to Chile, England, and hearing Chile win two two nil with Marcelo Salas. For me, that was the first time I've ever heard of Chile. You know, it was just it was just a joke country. You know, Chile. Oh, it's Chile over in Chile, whatever. But this is a time when Chile kind of arrived in my consciousness with an amazing kit and a, and a big result at Wembley. And uh, obviously, you mentioned the great teams that they produced a, a decade later, and, and teams that I really. Really enjoyed watching. Um, also, Uruguay 2010, you know, Suarez, Cavani, Forlan, great team. Um, but for you, yeah, I mean, in terms of Colombia, I'm based in Colombia. Colombia means a lot to me. And I mean, I think for Colombia, I arrived at the right time. You arrived in Chile at the right time. I arrived in Colombia at the right time. And it wasn't like I arrived and suddenly things took off. Colombia didn't get to the 2010 World Cup. But it was even better, I think. It gave me a bit of time to... Uh, to get used to the country and get used to the fact that Colombia hadn't been to a World Cup since 1998. And it wasn't really since 1994 that they'd been really that good. Obviously, they won the Copa America in 2001, but it was at home. Argentina wasn't there. It was a weird tournament. And then by 2007, 2008, Colombia was largely domestically based players and the Colombian domestic league wasn't in a great state. So I... I arrived in Colombia as in 2008. By 2014, I felt a little bit of the frustration of the people, and I just knew how much that 2014 World Cup meant. The fact that Colombia hadn't done anything for years, hadn't been a serious contender, hadn't been to a World Cup, and then suddenly they went to the 2014 World Cup, played great football. It was just such a big moment in this country, and uh, the fact that they went there and played with such style, the dance, the energy. It was a it was a team that really represented the diversity and the the music and the culture of this country in a great way. I think a lot of people um, fell in love with Colombia that tournament, and that meant a lot to the Colombian people because in Colombia they fear that the outside world just sees them as you know violent and, and the drugs and all that kind of issues that Colombia has. So it was a it was a huge tournament to experience and, and a really great team obviously Hammers in his very very best form Colombia with an abundance of striking options uh, top scores all over Europe or in that Colombian squad um, so to ha- look back at and admire the the 1994 team which was full of great characters and, and great inventive football and then to suffer a long old 20 years of, of nothing much happening and then to get back and now to be an established uh, footballing power in South America as Colombia really should be given the the size of the country and the passion for the game. So it's been a good time to experience Colombia. 2018 wasn't quite on 2018 in terms of experience. We won't have to get into that one, but it's just great to have Colombia back in the World Cup and now be a force in South American football. But that 2014 really announced Colombia back to the world. Yeah, I, th- I think maybe we could tie in um, another question, possibly here a little bit, and, that, and that's from Jack Tanner, who says, for the pundits, what has been your favourite or perhaps most significant South American match you've seen, Simon. I, I, I'm not. I'm not sure really how to how how to answer this. Whether he means like matches we've actually seen in person in the stadium, or or just on TV, or or like since we've moved here. 
I, th- I think I think we should perhaps answer it like significant matches that we've seen in person. I think could okay. be the most interesting way to answer it. So, um, Simon, I'll, I'll just come straight back to you first on that. Yeah, I mean, for me, uh, it was a an amazing time to be in Medellin. Was two thousand and sixteen, so I saw multiple games that year at the stadium. It was the year that Atletico Nacional was the best team on the continent. They won the Copa Libertadores in the most dominant fashion. If you look at the points, the goals, the amount they conceded, um, they were incredibly impressive throughout that year. Um, they won the Libertadores. They got to the final of the Sudamericana. Obviously, uh, the the tragic Chapaco NCA disaster meant that that game wasn't played. Nacional awarded the title to Chapaco And again, it was a, such an emotional year. And again, as I mentioned, Colombians... You know, love to to show their best side to the world, and and I think throughout that year with the great football they played, and then also the way that they responded to that disaster in such a you know compassionate way, um, was was great. It was great to see that Colombians doing the right thing and showing a good face to the world. But for me, that that year, there were a number of games. Obviously, the Rosario game was incredible. Um, <laughs> Colombia trailing one nil after the first leg away. Then conceded early in the in the second leg um, and came back to win three one, scoring in the ninety sixth minute um, and just everything kicking off. Uh, Orlando Berrios screaming in the face of the goalkeeper who'd been kind of winding him up a little bit, and then a bit of a fist fight, and then running into the crowd, and then. 10, 15 minutes of added on time. Giovanni La Celso with a clothesline in the 112th minute. Um, it was it was madness. But to to have that for me, the biggest, the best stadium experience is when you you think you deserve something, but it isn't happening, and then it does. So another game that that with that team was against uh, Atletico Minero. Uh, Ronaldinho was playing, and he wasn't at his best at the time, but he was still spectacular moments here and there, and it was nil nil. And 93rd minute, uh, Sherman Cardenas with a kind of a hopeful long-range drive that flew into the top corner and just everything exploded. Those games when you you think, okay, the team's doing everything right, they're pushing, they deserve it. But then you kind of get to that point where you think even the players start to doubt that they can do this. And then they do do it. And just the crowd and experience, that was amazing. The fact that Nacional won the Libertadores that year was was incredible. So for me... Yeah, multiple experiences over that year, but in particular that Rosario game and uh, that that game against Minero in the Sudamericana uh, were two of my highlights. Uh, what about what about you, Tom? Any any big experiences? Yeah, I think um, from when I was out living in Argentina in in 2011, I, I did manage to get to a, um, a well quite a few games, and and there were I was quite lucky in some respects to to see some really iconic games. Not necessarily for the games themselves, but just. Um, the kind of symbolism around them. So um, the the first one that jumped to my mind when when I saw this question was um, being at La Mormonera for Martin Palermo's last ever game. I mean, it was a pretty terrible one-all draw against Banfield and basically Boca the whole time were just trying to get the ball to Palermo to to see if he could score on his last game there. But in terms of atmosphere, it was absolutely incredible. Just the the whole stadium singing throughout the 90 minutes, just about Palermo, obviously the top scorer at the the club's history. And then there was this amazing hour-long kind of send-off after the game had finished and they uprooted the goalposts and and gave it to him as a present. He was like, I'm not really sure my garden's big enough for this, but but thanks for, for the gesture anyway. And and that was that was really sensational. Like the not so much for the game itself, but uh, for that for that send-off. That I thought that kind of 
encapsulated everything about South American fan passion. Yeah, and the, the other game would be from the same year when uh, River Plate lost to Belgrano to to get relegated down to the uh, the Bay for the first time in their history. That was again, you know, a pretty tense and and not necessarily enjoyable game, and pretty pretty scary scenes afterwards as we kind of ran out of the stadium trying to get the last sub day home. Uh, but again, just seeing the impact of that game. Um, was was incredible just to see. I'd never seen any kind of reaction to a football match like that. You know, Nunez and the whole area around it was just kind of felt like almost like a war zone, and um, that was definitely one that will stick in in my memory. And especially as my um, yeah my girlfriend's family are Belgrano supporters, um, it's one that they they will fondly remember when um, yeah whenever we bring it up. Um, so those those two are the ones that, that stand out from games that I've um, actually been to. And I mean if Again, just uh, without going into too much detail, I think sort of a, a game that really stuck in my memory that I didn't have the pleasure of being at live, but well, I think will go down as one of the most significant matches that um, of, of my time watching South American football was definitely that uh, 4-0 victory from uh, Universidad de Chile against uh, Flamengo. That was just such a absolute schooling of uh, one of the continent's biggest clubs by such an exciting, vibrant, team that, that ties exactly into what Adam was saying earlier about uh, Chile's national team during that time as well so yeah those those were some of the ones that I um, that, that that came to mind when when we got um, uh, Jack's question there how, how about you Adam? Yeah so I've already mentioned the Chile Uruguay game so I, th- I think that counts as my answer of, of, of sort of the game I was at in the stadium. Now, the other answer I'm going to give to this, I wasn't in the stadium, so sort of breaking my own rule there, but it, it was a key match in terms of turning me on to kind of Chilean football um, on in, in the domestic scene here after I moved here, because initially I found it a little bit difficult to get, to get into. Um, I didn't have a team to support, and I think it's always a bit difficult if you move somewhere, and, and if you're not vested in in a team and or or in any of the players or you know it's, it's all new to you it, it can take a while to sometimes really get into it so the first half of 2011 where we first started to see um San Paoli's Universidad the Chile side come together that was a really exciting time to to start watching Chilean club football and uh and that that year, it was the, the Chilean Championship was decided um, by playoff by a playoff system. So top eight um, qualified for for a playoff. Católica had finished. Universidad Católica had finished top of the table with uh, thirty eight points, and Universidad de Chile just three points behind them. Those two, after three rounds of of playoffs, ended up meeting in the final. Catolica, who had been the best team probably over the course of the of the first um, six months of the year, they they did win the first leg two 0 and that and that was the away leg, and I put that in inverted comments because both of these um, both of these uh, finals, the first leg, second leg, were played in the national stadium, so Universidad de Chile had the majority of fans in the stadium for that first leg, and and they lost two 0 and then Catolica had home advantage um, for the second leg with the majority of fans 
uh, of their fans in the stadium, and it looked like they were going to coast to victory. Because although Universidad de Chile took the lead to make it 2-1 on aggregate, Prato could put Católica uh, 3-1 up. And at that point, you're thinking, oh, this is looking pretty comfortable for 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 Catolica and but then San Paoli's Universidad de Chile just played them off the park for the final hour of that game and ended up winning the second leg four one and that was the key game really in 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 San Paoli's career for me um, because Universidad de Chile you know won that game won that title and then they that was the first of uh, three titles in a row. Um, league titles that is uh, the the end of that year they they also won the Copa Sudamericana uh, which was the first international title that Universidad de Chile ever won so yeah seeing that turnaround in that game and, and how exciting it was I watched it in a bar in Arica at the time and I can still remember the the buzz and the excitement around what we had just seen because uh, yeah it was just a uh, it was just a stunning performance, and the and the emergence of uh, Eduardo Vargas around that time as well was also very exciting. Right, um, let's move on to another question that came in, and this one is for you, Tom, and I, and it's from Will Ellen. He says one of my favourite ever players was the Little Witch, aka Juan Sebastián Verón. In Italy, his passing range, imagination, artistry and intelligence was incredible to watch as he was always looking for the killer free ball into space. We didn't see the best of him in England, but there were still many highlights. What is his legacy in Argentina? What is he up to now? And um, he also adds he always thought he was pretty smart, so I thought management might have been an option for him. Well, he went one higher than management, didn't he, in terms of the hierarchy of the club. Um, so maybe you can start there and then tell us about what his legacy in Argentina. Yeah, so at the moment he's uh, club chairman of Estudiantes, a club that he's absolutely synonymous here with. Well, not just him, but his, his entire family because his dad um, played for them as well and, and won titles back in the day as well. So um, he's, if anything... You know, you could argue that he's gone on to sort of surpass um, his his father's achievements. There, he's he's someone who always sent money back to the club and and was always very present, even when he was um, in Italy and and in England. So, certainly in the city of La Plata, he's he's an absolute icon for for half the half the city. Not so much for the Gimnasia fans, but um, yeah, he's he's sort of ushering through well he's ushered the move into the new stadium um and he's generally i think very well thought of at the moment in terms of he seems very level-headed very um looking to bring the kind of professional standards that he experienced in in europe and trying to establish them um at estudiantes in argentina and and things like that i mean i think also part of his legacy and legend as well as that after that kind of failed spell at, at Chelsea um, he, he went back to Estudiantes um, and won the Libertadores in 2009 you know obviously a very historic club but not necessarily one that's regularly con- com- uh, competing for titles so it's it's almost like Nottingham Forest or, or someone like that um, going back and re- reliving their glory days um, so 
that just kind of cemented him um, in terms of as a player in Argentina. And he even kind of, when he sort of left in 2012, he, he sort of had kept having these cameos back. He sort of came back briefly in 2013, 14, um, also had a, a spell at the age of 42 in the 2017 Libertadores, which was a bit of a gimmick and uh, kind of a distraction for Estudiantes. But um, yeah, just shows sort of, how much love and how highly rated that they thought that even a 40 something year old Veron could still, still do a job. And I think what's, what's really interesting about Veron as well is after that 2002 world cup, he was the scapegoat for Argentina. They kind of demonized him and, and blamed him for their exit at the group stage. Um, obviously he was one of the key players and absolutely fantastic in the qualifying for that tournament. And a lot of all the kind of Argentinian conspiracy theories came out that he was trying to impress his his English overlords in the Premier League um, by not playing as well as he could. So um, for a while, his his reputation for the wider Argentinian public was a bit tainted. But I think given everything he's done um, and, and the kind of good example that he seems to be setting, um, I think he's turned it around and a lot of them would um, quite like a, a midfielder of his ilk to be... Um, to, to be playing in the in the center of the park um now and and uh at the mo- at the moment we're uh, well due to uh record a special uh Juan Veron podcast with uh with Peter Golasso Argentino so keep a keep an ear out for that will because um you'll you'll have the entire career gone through there so sorry for that little plug there guys <laughs> okay moving on um this one was a pretty interesting one from Jesper Heinzer. Um, hi, are there any systems of play which are typical for the different countries or individual leagues, i.e. 4-4-2, 3-5-2, etc.? And does this often show when the teams clash in the Copper Libertadores? Who wants to take that first, Simon? Yeah, OK, I can I can give you perspective and then we'll maybe get a few ideas from around the continent and see where we see where we end up but uh i think yeah absolutely i think it definitely does i think predominantly it does seem to be some variant of 4-3-3 i think wing play is often important um i think uh traditionally obviously the number 10 is highly valued in in argentina uh, traditionally and in in colombia as well they really value a 10 so often uh, in colombia for example they'll have two defensive midfielders, a number 10, a couple of wingers and a, and a striker. Um, they also, in Colombia, have looked at 4 2 2 twos at different times. Again, it's all about squeezing in as many playmakers as you can. Uh, you look at modern teams, though, in Colombia, and, and they're, they're moving from that a little bit. Um, Tolima have been very successful using a lot of focus on their on their wings. Um, and uh, Junior, for example, they, they Teofilo Gutierrez plays slightly off a, a number nine usually uh, in a kind of four four two, um, which is, again is quite offensive and, and quite advanced. Um, I think if you look at Ecuador, again, they, they do tend to go for, for having focus on having wing play. I think also you can look at the defensive lines across the continent, which can be interesting. Obviously, some countries prefer to sit, sit deeper. Um, you know, particularly, for example, Brazil tends to sit quite deep and stretch the game with high forwards and have a lot of space, which can benefit kind of the pacey wing play they have. And that's, again, something we see in different countries. But yeah, absolutely. I think um, I think there are different different changes. But I do think at the moment, the Libertadores tends to be some variation of 4-3-3 um, with one of the three midfielders potentially pushing further forward to make it kind of a 4-2-3-1. 
Um, but that does seem to be what I see mostly. But what about elsewhere in the continent, Adam, Tom? What have, what have yeah, you been? Yeah, well, definitely, you know, four, two, three, one, uh, four, three, three are the dominant formations in in Chilean football. Um, and in terms of style of play, I think certainly ten years ago. So that would that would have been after three years of Marcelo Bielsa being Chile manager and sort of his ideas coming into Chilean football. Um, a lot of the top club sides in Chile who would go into the Libertadores, and we saw this with the aforementioned San Paoli's Universidad de Chile, but there was also other sides from around that time, O'Higgins, Uni Española, they, they, would, they would take elements, um, Catolica as well, they would take elements of sort of Bielsa's ideas into their football, and, and, and you could clearly see that. Uh, working um, on 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 the field, but that's for me. That's kind of faded over time. At the same time as Chilean club sides have faded badly, um, generally in the Libertadores in the in the last few years. Um, but yeah, I, I think uh, I think the Chilean club sides, which have been sort of effective over the last few years, have really used their fullbacks well. Um, and and have generally played a fairly high line as well. It's pointless Chile a lot of the Chilean defenders defending deep because generally there there isn't much height um, in in Chilean football. So you d- you don't want to be crowding your your own goal and waiting for crosses to come in trying to defend it. So you're looking to sort of push up and um, and try and def- try and defend high up the pitch as possible. That's tip generally proved the more effective way of playing for, for Chilean sides over the years. Yeah, I'd, I'd obviously agree with everything you guys have said there. And, and I would say in Argentina as well that, you know, 4-2-3-1 or sort of, yeah, f- versions of that and, and the 4-3-3 seem to be the most typical. Obviously, as Simon said there, the, the number 10, the playmakers always had a really historical, significant role, as has the number five, the defensive midfielder in Argentina. So you, you often see... Uh, teams that will you know incorporate some version of that I think that I mean rather than necessarily systems of play that that typical teams are um, are associated with I think it's more styles of play that you can attribute to to clubs in Argentina you know Boca is probably more of a all about the result and um, you know more about putting in the hard yards and and grinding results out where teams like River, um, Racing, they're going to be sides that are focused more on um, a kind of more elaborate passing style of football. I mean, you could even look at Gajalo's River and just see the, the number of kind of different formations and different setups that they've used. You know, they've used 4-2-2-2s, you know, particularly in the 2015 Libertadores. You've seen them use... 5-3-2 in the 2018 Libertadores, quite, they, they used that quite successfully. Um, you know, 4-3-1-2s, 4-1-1, sorry, 4-1-4-1s. So I think, yeah, there's most of the teams are sort of flexible in terms of their, or the better teams at least anywhere, sort of flexible within their systems of play. Um, but certainly you can attribute different styles. And, w- and when it comes to sort of clashes in the Libertadores, um, I think, 
you get some really interesting matchups, not just necessarily in terms of the the way teams are playing, but the the other elements that that come into it. Obviously, you know, we could we could go on about the the altitudes and and maybe the the heat in Barranquilla or somewhere like that that um, that can affect how the games are played. I think that's a really interesting point about the altitude and one one what I was um, going to come on to as well. Um, because you know, uh, the way a side who is used to having altitude as an advantage plays at home is com- then completely different away, isn't it? And we've seen <laughs> exactly, this, yeah. especially with Wilsterman in in recent years, one of our one of our favourite teams on the show, where they can beat River Plate three nil um, one week at one week at home and they lose eight nil to them away the next week, even when they're trying to defend with 10 men behind the ball. Exactly. Uh, yeah. I think particularly Bolivia is the starkest contrast because when they're playing at home, even the national side will be very offensive. They'll try to m- keep the play moving as quickly as they can because they have the advantage. They're more comfortable at altitude. So they'll play some kind of good attacking football. They go away and they'll have eight, nine players standing in the penalty box trying to head the ball away. So you're absolutely right that it does change drastically. And um, I think as well, I think it's it's better to to typify or to, to describe a style of play or, or an ambition of play as much as a formation. Because each country has its own qualities. You know, we've mentioned Ecuador likes to play some free-flowing, creative attack in football. They want to spread the game as much as possible. Whereas, for example, Paraguay, they're 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 tough they're organized they have a bit of an outlet here and there but they want to keep things a little bit more compact generally speaking um and i think you can see that in different countries um not just the the way they set up and the personnel but also what they see as their strengths and how they're looking to play to those Uh, tom what did you think yeah exactly I'd, i'd completely agree with uh with both your points there and and um i think yeah that that's generally how a lot of these kind of clashes in the Libertadores end up end up getting pitched, you know, home and away advantage so important. You can see different different styles. I mean, and even in I think Brazil, certainly seeing Flamengo play with much the lines a lot closer together has kind of seen them steamroller the the league. Whereas they suffered a lot when they came up against non Brazilian sides in the Libertadores. So little things like that are quite interesting as well and um yeah i think generally there's also the just the mental aspect of if you're up, coming up against an argentinian team then there's always that kind of sense that they could they could use their kind of nous to to overturn you even against sort of big strong brazilian sides with uh, with with bigger finances so as well as the kind of geographic and and general kind of national psyches that come into some of the systems of play you've also got that kind of history between the cl- uh, the clubs and the teams and the nations that that influence how they play as well so th- there's so many aspects to go into and we could probably do a whole three hours just on <laughs> breaking down different uh, team systems of play so that's hopefully that's answered the question for you absolutely yeah and, I, and, and we won't do three hours but i'll just say for me as a colombian fan i feel colombia have to be better than their opponents to win uh, and it can be frustrating because they don't have that toughness that nous, that gamesmanship as as well fine-tuned as some of the the artists in that in that field perhaps further, further south in the continent so yeah absolutely there's definitely that side of things as well game management getting in the opposition's head and, and seeing things out uh, definitely can can be an important factor on a decisive 
factor in this competitions. Indeed, indeed. Um, okay, and the last of the questions we got from Facebook was from Christopher Leonard. Leonard? Leonard, I guess. I'm trying Probably to pronounce Leonard. it a South American <laughs> way. <laughs> Christopher Leonard. Yeah. Um, and he says, uh, uh, well, he basically says, um, Cheech or Cheeche. Can we ever remember which, how was that pronounced? Was it Cheech or Cheeche in the end? The Brazilian Carioca or Paulista. He says, please give reflections, status and and expectations. So I'm guessing he wants sort of a, what do we think about the job he's done so far currently and also how we think he'll he possibly do in, in, in the future. For, just quickly from, from my perspective, how I see it. I feel that his Brazil side was one of the best we've seen in, in South American um, World Cup qualifying. And when we compare them to how they played then and how they approach games in the World Cup, it felt a little bit of a disappointment. But I do feel a little bit sorry for him and, and, and Brazil in general, where I think that the quarterfinal they played against uh, Belgium in that World Cup was arguably their best performance, but they just couldn't convert, you know, their chances into goals. But on another day, they win that game and possibly go on to win the World Cup. Um, and in, in contrast to that, I wasn't overly impressed by them in the in the Copa America at all uh, last year, and I, I thought they were a little fortunate to 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 win it in some ways, but they were. Yeah, what it was a poor tournament in general, and and I think uh, I, I think it's harsh to say they're fortunate to win it, but but they were yeah they they were probably a deserved winners, but they didn't exactly blow us away, did they? It, it wasn't yeah you what know, it, it wasn't the kind of vintage performances we were seeing from from Chile three four years earlier um, on the way. So you know they didn't particularly excite on route. Um, and and as for a future, yeah, I'm I'm really not sure. Um, they've they've got an incredible amount of uh, exciting attacking talent coming through there, and and if and if uh, Cheech can fit fit them into a system that works, then you know they could certainly be one of the most exciting sides in in world football again. Yeah, I would agree with what Adam said there. I mean, I've been a fan of his um, ever since that 2012. Um, Libertadores win with uh, Corinthians and and then beating Chelsea in the in the FIFA uh, Club World Cup as well. Um, and what I've what I've liked about Cheech is the fact that he's you know he's he's not afraid to go out and and learn and and take ideas and and be influenced by sort of wider footballing principles, which I think sometimes Brazil has the the tendency to to sort of navel gaze a little bit and uh, and sort of believe in its uh, superiority because of its all its great history but yeah the fact that he kind of took that sabbatical year out learned from some really good coaches and and then absolutely transformed that Brazilian team because let's let's not be around the bush when he came in they were in an absolute sorry state and in you know that that time between him taking over and and the start of the world cup at least anyway they'd gone from you know potentially a side that you know could feasibly have missed out um you know it, it might seem fanciful to say that now but um they they were really in a bad place um after the after the previous world cup and and he got them to comfortably um 
sort of in that qualifying the the best side on on the continent in a very short space of time. So um, I think if he's given time, um, he can, he can still mold something good. I mean, I would certainly I would agree with Adam in terms of it's after those high initial expectation uh, yeah, impressions and, and expectations, things have have maybe sort of plateaued a little bit, and and maybe he's not quite getting as as much out of a really talented group of players as, as he potentially could. But I think he's there's not too many better managers out there, certainly in Brazil, that could come in and and do better than him. So hopefully they'll stick with him. And and as again, as Adam said, so many good young players coming through that there's 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 a lot of potential there for for them to go on and improve. So um, yeah, uh, be I'll be interested to see what happens next for him. Yeah, I would agree that you have to look at where they were when he took over and how he got that team so organised, so collective, and and they were incredible going into the World Cup. Again, I, I, yeah, the World Cup, I think maybe they lost a little bit of that control. I think Neymar had been very disciplined in his work up until the World Cup on the biggest stage with all the lights, wanting to take ownership for responsibility. I think at times he wasn't as collective as he had been in qualifying. Again, it's Neymar. He has incredible moments as well. You know, I don't want to um, be too negative. <laughs> it's, it's Neymar. He's great. But I do think he, he maybe took... A, you know, took a few too many chances and wasn't quite as collective in the World Cup as a player. And Chicha, again, maybe wasn't at his very, very best that we've seen, which was incredible given the progress. I think um, I think he's a very good manager. And I think Brazil are very short on very good managers. Um, I think they have an incredible amount of talent. The league is full of superstars and wonder kids. It's, the list is long and long, long and impressive. Um, but I, I think they're very short on good managers and good ideas. I think if they had the the culture and ide- identity and the ideology and the, the thinking in football of someone like Argentina or even Uruguay, then I think they'd be in an amazing place. And I can't see Brazil appointing a foreigner right now. So Chiche for me is definitely the best man for the job. I think if he can get this team with constant games coming up every couple of months, I think that will help him get him get his team set. I think he's going to have a lot of very difficult selection issues because I think they've got 30 players who could all play at the very top in South American international football. Um, but it's a good place to be, um, maybe 40 players. So, yeah, I think he's a he's Brazil's best manager. And I think if he can um, get this side in gear over the coming months, they'll be, they'll be back to their best. And, uh, yeah, the Copa America was a little bit underwhelming. They won it. Danny Alves was the, the star man for me. Uh, there was a few questions still to be answered, I think, moving forward. But I think they've got the right manager uh, at the moment uh, in, in place. Okay, well, that brings us to the end of part one of the South American Football Show Q&A session. Join us for part two, where we'll be answering the questions that we received from Twitter. <laughs>